I'm James Gould, and you're listening to The Recess Course. Today on the show, we're going to talk about massive upper GI bleed. GI bleeding uh, really can be a sphincter-tightening experience. Like most things in medicine, there's a fairly wide spectrum of sickness within GI bleeding, not to mention various types. And this session, we're going to specifically focus on the upper GI bleeds, and, and more importantly, we're going to focus on massive upper GI bleeding. And we have with us Dr. John Armstrong. John is the assistant professor at Dalhousie Department of Emergency Medicine. He's a staff physician at the QE2 Health Sciences Center and at the IWK Children's Hospital. He's also the medical director for Nova Scotia Health Emergency Preparedness and the medical director for EHS Emergency Preparedness and Special Operations Division. So, uh, John, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure to be here, James. And I understand, John, you, or I guess I, we should say uh, up front, is that you also have quite a bit of experience in surgery yourself, yeah? I wouldn't say quite a bit. Um, many, many years ago, I did two years of general surgery residency before seeing the light and becoming an emergency <laughs> physician. That was enough, two years. Uh, I mean, I would say I'm an enthusiastic amateur. <laughs> It probably gives you a little bit of a different experience or a per- different perspective, I guess I should say, on um, on this particular topic. You must have seen a few upper GI bleeds make their way to the operating room. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely assisted in some repairs, and I've done probably 200 and some upper scopes myself uh, during training, as well as about 200 lower scopes. So uh, I can commiserate with the gastroenterologists on the difficulty of uh, controlling bleeds uh, with upper and lower endoscopy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, John. So what we're going to do is I'll go through, I'll just set you up with a case and it'll sort of frame things for us. So we have a, an idea of the patient that we're talking about today. Um, and then we'll follow that up with a few questions. So let's get right into it. So you're working in a busy emergency department. A, you get a call from EHS, about a 47-year-old male that's coming in. They have been found altered in their bedroom by their wife. They're covered in blood, sort of head to toe with some Molina in the bed. He's having active hematemesis en route to hospital. And at the time of the call, he's got a GCS of 12, which is an E3 V4 M5, has a heart rate of 140, a blood pressure of 65 on 30, and his saturations are 92% on 2 liters. So just on, on hearing that case, what are your immediate sort of thoughts about that patient's presentation and what's just going through your mind? Certainly sphincter tightening, as you mentioned. <laughs> um, just from that patch, this gentleman sounds like he's exsanguinating, uh, likely sort of peri-arrest. His pressure is very low. Shock index is greater than two. Um, and with the description from the medics suggestive of Molina and all the hematemesis blood everywhere, you'd suspect a massive upper GI bleed. I mean, my first sort of thought would be we need to prepare to receive this casualty. Um, This guy's going to need a lot of resuscitation, and certainly a lot of equipment's going to have to be set up for him. Yeah. Yeah, so how would you prepare for their arrival? What are the kind of the things that you get ready, equipment-wise, people-wise? Ideally, you can clear out uh, one of your resuscitation rooms in your department. You're going to want to have the most experienced people you have in the department to receive this casualty. Ideally, if you can have two physicians, uh, if you have double coverage or more during the daytime when this guy rolls in, just so you can kind of compartmentalize who's doing what. You know, if this guy needs advanced line access, it'd be great to have one physician doing that dedicated 
airway would be great if you had a physician dedicated to that. So really being able to spread out the load so that you're not just by yourself. In our case at the QE2, uh, you definitely want to have the departmental medic, uh, respiratory therapy, all hands on deck, essentially. In a way, this is kind of a a traumatic trauma case. Yeah, You can kind of think of it the same way. You're going to want to have uh, all of your airway setups. You're going to want to have double suction, uh, decanto suctions, ideally. You can foresee you're going to have large volumes of very thick, uh, bloody secretions coming in the upper airway. I think uh, front of neck access needs to be in your mind as well and certainly communicated to the team. Um, if this guy's really exsanguinating and just having constant uh, bloody emesis, you may not be able to do uh, sort of a direct endotracheal intubation. So having that just in your mind. And then depending on the patient's history, having a Blakemore tube or similar uh, esophageal and gastric balloon device in the room would be very helpful. IO access at the ready, have the, your hotline primed, basically ready for a trauma resuscitation in many ways. Yeah, yeah, well said. You know, in terms of that and traumas, we talk a lot about massive transfusion protocols and, and what blood we give to patients. And there are some criteria on how we decide to give trauma patients blood, but I don't know that there's any, at least not that I'm aware of, any sort of criteria specifically related to upper GI bleeding. And I want to get a little bit more into the administrative administration of blood products for this patient. So when would you decide that this patient needs sort of massive transfusion or would you? So how would you go about um, blood product resuscitation in this patient? Just from the, the initial information about this patient, I would probably lean towards activating a massive transfusion protocol immediately and alerting mm. the blood bank early. Uh, like even pre-hospital. Absolutely. I mean, he yeah. sounds terrible. It's obvious he is active bleeding. Um, so by gestalt alone, I would be thinking towards massive transfusion. Mm. As far as what our colleagues at Canada, uh, sorry, Canada Blood Services would suggest for massive transfusion, there are a number of different sort of critical thresholds that you can consider. One is more than three units in one hour. It sounds like this guy is going to need two units on arrival. So I suspect he's probably going to need three units in one hour. So that critical administration threshold to activate MTP already seems like it's going to be correct. Having a shock index greater of one after one liter of fluid is another one of CBS's uh, guidelines for activation. And I would suspect that unless his source of bleeding has miraculously plugged itself, He's still going to be having a really bad shock index, uh, even after a liter of fluid, even if that fluid is blood. Um, what ratio of blood products are you using in, in these scenarios? And we always talk about one to one to one in trauma patients. Is that the same in this patient? And what does it kind of mean to you in terms of a one to one to one strategy? I say that for me, one to one to one is the goal. Um, whether or not that's actually possible is a different question, and that's going to vary at each institution. Just to clarify what we're talking about when we say one-to-one-to-one transfusion, it may differ depending on institution, but locally here for us, what that equates to is four units of packed red blood cells, one liter of plasma, and one apheresis platelets. Ideally, this guy would just be getting whole blood if that were available. But it's not available, certainly at our center yet. Uh, maybe in a couple of years it will be. 
but there's a good deal of evidence that whole blood transfusion is significantly better at uh, balancing all of your coagulopathy issues. So let's say he comes in, so you have him in the emergency department now, you've gotten your IV access, and you start your massive transfusion protocol. What is the goal blood pressure? Because obviously we're giving blood to try to target something. We're trying to accomplish some goal by doing it. And you mentioned the shock index. You also mentioned a systolic blood pressure less than 90. What is your blood pressure goal or do you have one? So when you have bleeding that you cannot put pressure on, which in this case would, would be true, you do want to limit how much pressure you're putting through the vascular system to try to encourage clotting, mm. um, regardless of the cause of bleeding. So variceal bleeds versus, say, the uh, duodenal artery, both of those are going to clot better if the flow is slower. What, do you have a number specifically that you're, that you're looking at, or is it more clinical? Is it that the patient's mentating that they're awake, uh, or is it a specific mean arterial pressure, mean systolic pressure? And So as far as numbers go... Um, it depends whether or not there's any brain problems associated with this. And this guy, obviously not. Like, this is not a real sort of trauma patient, so you don't have uh, any concern about intracranial pressure. Right. So there's a broad body of evidence that suggests that a map of 50 to 60 would not increase mortality. Mm. Um, that's from trauma data. I would consider this to be an equivalent of trauma, whether it's variceal bleeding, which you could consider somewhat equivalent to pelvic bleeding or whether it's arterial, which would be the same as any other traumatic arterial bleed. I think it's important to step in here and identify that we are talking about a very specific patient population. The patient who has massive hemorrhage for some reason, whether or not that be trauma, GI bleeding, or something like a ruptured AAA, that is a very unique patient population where we talk about the idea of permissive hypotension. And it is very important to separate that from the typical shock unstable patient where we know that patients have a worse mortality when they have MAPs less than 65. And we do always want to protect that MAP to 65 in the majority of patients, but this is a very unique subset of patients that we will tolerate a lower MAP in. So I think a MAP of 50 to 60 would be reasonable. I think what you're suggesting of just looking at the patient in front of you is also an excellent option. If they are awake, uh, if they're oriented, then you're, you've got more than enough pressure. Yeah. So I would not push it further than what you need to get that. Now, granted, if you've gone to the point of taking the airway, the patient's sedated, it's harder to gauge that. So in that case, I would say a map of 50 to 60 would be a reasonable goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, well said. I think that that drives with what what I do as well. And, um, you know, I think that we, in general, perhaps don't put enough emphasis on how important it is to just look at clinical endpoints of of perfusion. So, you know, is the patient awake and alert and talking? If if their map is is 48, um, you know, I don't know that it matters so much. I mean, they've demonstrated to me that they're at least perfusing their brain enough to be awake and talking to me. So... Totally. Um, yeah, resuscitate to uh, mentate. Absolutely. And I mean, if you think about age and other comorbidities, that's going to change what type of vascular system you're working with. 
Mm. So, I mean, if you if you have a very elderly person with a lot of calcium in their blood vessels, so to speak, they're going to need a higher map to have the same brain perfusion as a younger person because yeah. you're registering a higher blood pressure. Um, similarly, in a cirrhotic patient, their venous system is so diffusely dilated uh, that getting a really high map may be very challenging, even though they technically still have a lot of blood in their system. I want to talk a little bit about how you administer your blood products in you know, any massively exsanguinating patient. Here we're talking about a GI bleed. I mean, you could, you could liken it to massive exsanguination and trauma. Imagine you, know, you have a choice with an IO, peripheral access, central access. Which of those three are you going to choose? You know, why are you going to choose it? Uh, do you have a preference or, in that? What are your thoughts there? I mean, if you could get uh, a beefy femoral line, like a cordis or something, that would be great. At onset, you're probably going to be dealing with some short anticubital, you know, 18 gauges. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Central lines are not great for pushing lots of product quickly, but the benefit is you have multiple ports, so you can run a lot of stuff at once. Like a triple lumen, you mean? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fair enough, yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think for blood products, if you can get proximal wide bore IVs, that would be ideal. Um, for sort of attaching to your hotline, uh, your rapid infuser. But this person's going to need a lot of products and a lot of sort of adjuvant materials. So having more lines is better. Yeah, yeah, that's well said. The I like that cordis idea. I guess I'm kind of leading there because I have a preference myself in terms of what I think is best in a in a massively exsanguinating. GI bleed and that is that that is the sort of percutaneous sheath or or cordis as we call it locally in the in the femoral vein and um, you know I say this to the residents when we're talking about GI bleeding or or bleeding and vol- giving volume in general is that you know most of the time patients like you said are just going to come in with an 18 gauge and initially the the nurses paramedics are going to be getting you know, the, the biggest access they can get. So usually like a 16 in the AC fossa. And we really pride ourselves in Emerge with the idea that we can resuscitate people with these peripheral IVs. And, and we definitely can. Like there's no doubt about it that we do a good job and you definitely can resuscitate people volume-wise with peripheral lines. But there's nothing better um, in my mind in terms of reliability. Doesn't Nothing eases my mind more in a, in a patient who needs volume uh, than having a a big cordis in the in the femoral vein i agree yeah especially when they need so many products right and and a bit um i guess a bit contextual right like you know where we work we have the luxury john of if we had one of these massive upper gi bleeds you know you and i could both be in the room and we may have a senior resident with us so absolutely that's obviously a bit different than working in a center with single coverage and, and no senior residents and that, you know, probably priority wise, having those two, you know, 16 gauge IVs and the AC fossas is, is the most appropriate thing. Um, but our context is a bit different. There's no reason why we can't have someone putting in a femoral line whilst we do everything else. And you have to get what you can get. I mean, this patient needs resuscitation as fast as possible. So if you're having trouble, I mean, I, I suspect he's going to be peripherally quite clamped down by the time yeah. he arrives and he emerges. So if you have to go to an IO, I would do it without hesitation quickly. Because this yeah. guy does not have the time to entertain 
you know, numerous IV pokes trying to get a good anticubital vein. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I want to switch gears a little bit. We, um, in the past couple of years, we've, I think maybe shifted our mindset back and forth on TXA use and GI bleeds. And TXA is such a, it's such a popular thing in, in emergency medicine, at least in the past 10 years. And the newer evidence, I think, would suggest that maybe it's not the right thing in, in GI bleeds. But I'd, I'd like to hear your opinion on it. Like, do you give it in, in these patients? Does it matter the severity? What are your thoughts there? So that is a very good question. And there's a lot of new stuff out there that I think we should just kind of break down a little bit. So up until recently, the only studies on tranexamic acid in GI bleeds were pretty small, but they did show favorable outcomes. Physiologically, we can imagine why that would make sense. I mean, we know that there's benefit in trauma. There seems to be benefit in obstetrical hemorrhage. So, you know, bleeding is bleeding. But there's kind of the caveat that timing is critical, right? With GI bleeds, you often have a pretty poor understanding of when the bleeding started. I mean, by the time you're getting a Molina stool, that bleeding's been going on for a while. But that depends on how short their gut is. It depends on the source, exactly where in the GI tract is bleeding. So it's really hard to tell when did it start. Now, right. with variceal bleeding, sometimes you can have a pretty obvious start time. Uh, they retch, and then suddenly blood starts coming out. But it's not as easy as time of trauma was so-and-so hours, right? And then GI bleeding also is occurring in context often of liver disease. And so if that's happening, people with liver disease have very atypical clotting factors, right? They have deficiency of all their vitamin K factors, which includes protein CNS. So not only are they bleeding, but they're also clotting, and it's very dysregulated. So it's not quite the same patient population. Mm. I suspect you're alluding to the HALTIT trial, as far as the fang-dangled new evidence that TXA may not be quite as shiny as we <laughs> once thought it might have been. Would that be you correct? Yeah, you got her. So the HALTA trial, huge trial, quite good. Uh, I mean, I can't really say that it's just bad science. It's great science. A few things to discuss, perhaps, would be that their overall mortality was 4%. And if you look at the Rockall scores for GI bleeds, overall mortality is usually double that, usually 10 or mm -hmm. 11%. So that's an interesting point altogether, is that in both groups, their overall mortality was about the same, and it was half of what you'd expect for a massive GI bleed. So what type of GI bleeding were they dealing with in the patients in this trial? I don't know. But they had quite good outcomes comparatively. Right. The inclusion criteria included some obvious good stuff, so hypotension, tachycardic, shock index, but it also included, quote, those likely to need transfusion or urgent endoscopy or surgery. And I'm not sure what that means. I don't think, yeah. I, I certainly don't have the, the, the data to explain that. So I'm, again, I'm sort of looking at, is the patient in front of me here in the scenario you've given me the right patient for that trial? And right. I don't know the answer to that question. Right. Like the generalizability of it. Exactly. So would you give it here? Probably. Yeah, fair enough. The last case I had that was like this, I did give TXA. The patient survived. Was it because of TXA? Probably not. Uh, it was probably due to giving dozens of units of blood products and them going to surgery. Right. 
the 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 more the more harmful thing to the patient then is probably sitting around and and trying to decide whether or not you're going to do it and just either do it or don't do it and then move on and do the stuff that's actually going to help is that is that fair to say yeah i mean the authors of the halted trial kind of concluded by saying that uh, tranexamic acid reduces bleeding deaths in patients with traumatic and postpartum hemorrhage individual patient data uh, should assess the strength of the evidence that the effectiveness and safety of transamic acid varies by the site and cause of bleeding. Speaking of medications that may or may not work, uh, what are your thoughts on, and I guess timing and, you know, when you give these things, but we always talk about Pantaloc and octreotide and ceftriaxone, erythromycin. Um, so what, when do you, where, what do you think about these medications? Do you give them and, and when do you give them in terms of prioritizing the medications in their cessation? So I think in someone who needs such extreme resuscitation as the patient that you've given in this scenario, they would be the bottom of the list. By the time this guy's arriving in the ED, he's practically bled to death. So any IV line that you're using for not blood products is probably a mistake. And it depends on the, the characterization of the bleeding in the patient. So if you have someone with a variceal bleed with a clear history that is not actively dying in front of you, then somatostatin or octreotide would be fine. Um, Ceftriaxone, sure. And you could give that IM if you don't have a line. Is it going to be the life-saving factor? Probably not, but there's evidence it's helpful. Panelock is really at the bottom of the list. Uh, It has the least evidence and in some studies has shown harm. And if you really want to give it, you can give boluses, uh, as those are non-inferior to a drip, so you don't need to tie up a line. Mm. Nice. Yeah, well said. I mean, you know, things to, 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 to think about after you've thought about the important stuff, and obviously never give them in such a way that it's going to interfere with the important stuff. So you're not infusing Pantalock through the, the one AC line that you have and waiting for that to be done before you move on to the to the blood products, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're better off using that line for fibrinogen or calcium or some other adjunct that's going to help you with your fluid and blood resuscitation, as opposed to playing around with those medications. Calcium is an important one. Uh, We didn't really talk about that earlier when we talked about blood product administration, but when are you giving calcium in these patients? Uh, How often, how much? Uh, Definitely. Uh, I think anyone who's receiving a mass transfusion is going to need calcium, uh, mainly because of all the citrate in the blood. So you should give two grams of calcium gluconate or one gram of calcium chloride for every two to four units of packed red cells. Mm. Yeah, that's, it's such an important thing. I mean, we focus on, we we think about it in trauma, you know, in our trauma team activations uh, when we're doing massive transfusion protocol, but, you know, it applies to to anyone really that's massively exsanguinating it's a clotting you know part of the clotting cascade and an important part of um you know hemostasis so we really should be just thinking about it in general i think for for exsanguinating patients but definitely as you said the the ones that are also depleting their calcium for other reasons like massive transfusion protocols and, and the citrate then you know they absolutely need it for replacement but maybe even in the patients that uh you know right off the bat uh, while we're getting the Massive transfusion set up, I'd consider giving this patient a, a bolus of calcium. Yeah, very reasonable and important to keep up on it as you, you don't want to get lost in all the bags of blood that are coming in and forget to do it. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, it, th- this sounds like a patient who's, you know, moving towards needing definitive airway management for, for many reasons. But that is something that's obviously very scary. I mean, we we harp on the idea of resuscitate before you intubate because it's so important. Um, ultimately, this patient, you know, is going to need it. So, you know, what's your approach there? How do you cognitively make the decision to intubate them when's the right time? And, and what's your setup? Awesome questions. So, I mean, as you pointed out, this guy needs a uh, secure airway for a number of reasons. One, airway protection. He has decreased GCS and constant hematemesis. So risk of aspiration is extremely high. Uh, and then the other big reason is for projected course. He's going to need either endoscopy or surgery. Both of those are only going to work if he has a controlled airway. And, you know, many people will have a scope in the ED, you know, for a foreign body without needing their airway secured, but it's a very different situation. You know, you're giving them a bit of fentanyl, some midazolam, a little topicalization, and they get what's effectively an outpatient upper endoscopy. But for a patient like this, the amount of bleeding they need to have a secure airway to allow the gastroenterologist to manipulate the endoscope without having to worry about constantly suctioning out the airway. So the projected course for this patient is that they're going to need a, uh, a secure airway. And, and then the second question that you've brought up is when. This patient is physiologically in a pretty catastrophic state. And if we were to proceed to try and intubate this gentleman as soon as he hit the door, he would probably have a peri-intubation arrest, almost certainly. Yeah. So I would try to buy some time and buy some blood pressure with blood products. I've been trying to sort of correct the metabolic derangements that he almost certainly has. So give blood, uh, give calcium. He may need some additional factor support for coagulation cascade. Warm him up. See if we can kind of get that map 50 to 60 and see how he is. Mm. If this gentleman has a history of liver disease and you think this may be varicel, it may be the only thing you're going to be able to do is try to get a Blakemore tube in. In which case, you're going to have to get an airway anyway, so you'd have to try. And if you do have to do a crash airway, I would just go with an RSI. Yeah. Now, that's potentially contentious because if you can do an awake intubation on someone like this, it'll be way better physiologically. But I would be concerned with any risk of retching. Yeah. So if this is any esophageal source and they start retching because they're not proper, properly topicalized, even if they're somewhat stable... It's just, that's a little spooky to me yeah. that you're risking yeah. them not taking well to an awake airway and then causing a bleed to restart. Yeah, that's well said. I, we, we focus a lot on on awake airways here for in Halifax for physiologically difficult intubations. And, and, and you could, you could you know, there's arguments both ways. You could certainly make an argument for, for why it would be beneficial in a, in a hypotensive GI bleed. But for the reasons you appropriately stated, you know, there are concerns about that. And so there are, there's certainly two sides to it. Like most things in, in medicine and resuscitation, sometimes there's no right answer or right decision. It's more important that you just make the decision and move forward with it. Uh, so in terms of medications, like a reduced ketamine dose, like 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, uh, yep. and, uh, rock uranium 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, you're looking at someone whose GCS is already depressed anyhow. So you're really doing the, uh, as you say, the sedation is for them. The paralytic is for us. And so in this case, you want to make sure you get this right the first time, um, as quickly as possible. 
So yeah. I'd go as light as you can on the ketamine and as heavy as you have to on the rocuronium. And I love what you said about, I mean, we, again, we harp on the idea of resuscitate before you intubate and, and we do our best to make people relatively stable before we, we, we sort of um, go ahead with the intubation. But sometimes people just remain unstable because of their underlying illness. And in this case, it might be that you're unable to make them as stable as you'd like them to be until they're intubated and, and have a Blake more or until they're intubated and they have their, their ultimate disposition or management. And, um, you know, sometimes you just have to plug your nose and jump. And this is kind of one of those scenarios where that might be the case. And it's important to relay that to your team, right? Yeah. Like when, before this guy lands, walk through the ideal situation and the unideal situation. So that everyone knows that if you have to plug your nose and jump, it's all still part of a plan. Not the first yeah. plan, but it's part of a plan. Yeah. Yeah, really well said. No, not to deviate too far in terms of the airway stuff, but you know, we teach you know, salad intubation here, suction-assisted laryngoscopy and decontamination. This would probably be one that uh, you mentioned sort of double setup, but probably, or sorry, double suction. This would be one that I'd have the decanto catheters and be sort of you know, prepping the team, like you say, and planning for this being a, a salad type intubation, perhaps. What are your Absolutely. thoughts on that? Yeah, 100%. Uh, you're going to have to expect so much contamination of the upper airway uh, that you're going to have to do a double suction technique. For those of you who aren't familiar with the suction-assisted laryngoscopy and decontamination technique, Dr. Adam Parks has a great video on our website where he reviews and teaches the technique of salad sake and esophageal intubation for the contaminated airway. Check it out under videos at therecesscourse.com. It seems like there's sort of almost no sweet spot for scoping patients. You know, it seems like they're either too stable to scope and it's going to happen tomorrow morning at 8.30 or they're too unstable to scope. And so... You know, what is the right time? And I, I say this knowing that we're not, you know, gastroenterologists. We're not the ones doing the scopes. And so I respect our colleagues and I respect their opinion and, and that kind of thing. But just objectively or based on the evidence and your experience, what is the right time to scope these patients in a massive upper GI bleed like this? That is a challenging question. Um the most recent evidence that I could find was a large New England Journal of Medicine study in 2020, and that found that patients receiving endoscopy either sort of urgently, less than six hours after consultation with gastroenterology versus those scoped between six and 24 hours later had no difference in mortality. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, has kind of led to that within the next day uh, attitude. Certainly for stable GI bleeds, that would be completely reasonable. But this study was for patients in stable condition. They had high risk for rebleeding, but they were stable. So they weren't actively exsanguinating. Right. In an older study in endoscopy uh, back in 2011, that study found that early endoscopy in high-risk patients did show mortality benefit. But again, even those patients were stable. So we're really looking at a different monster altogether. This person has an active, in some way, again, I describe it again, they have a traumatic bleed. We just can't put pressure on it. So it really, to me, they need to get eyes on it 
to determine whether it's something they can fix or something that they need the surgical colleagues to come in and help with. Yeah, well said, well said. You know, I can kind of see three different patients that have upper GI bleeds. There's, you know, the ones that, you know, we care about, but we're not worried about, I guess the best way to say it. So they come in, they've had some either documented, objective, Molina, or sort of on history and, and maybe a slightly reduced hemoglobin from baseline and you know you write some orders for them for for pantalock you consult gi and go on on your day and see other people and then there's the other two people and and we worry both about them and they're both sick um but i think they're they're very different so there's the one that comes in they've been hypotensive and you've resuscitated them with the blood and they've stabilized and then you ask gi to come scope them and and they do so in a in a expedited manner and and there's the third patient, which I think is who we're talking about today, who's just the massively exsanguinating patient. Despite what you're doing, they remain unstable. And in that patient, I totally agree. There needs to be the GI involvement in terms of scoping. But I think one point we should maybe make is that there's the other interventions, and, and I want to get into those. So the, the, the IR interventions and the surgical interventions, and probably in that patient, the one we're talking about today, probably have to have all of those people involved in the conversation, you know, at the beginning. And it doesn't mean that they're going to go right up to the operating room now, but I think that it does mean that you need to have the surgeon at the bedside and the GI doc at the bedside and even the IR interventional radiologist at the bedside. And, and the four of you need to make that decision together as to what the best next step for the patient is. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. It's just, sort of situation where you want all the teams to be involved so that no one is caught hours later first hearing about the patient. Yeah. You know, you, you failed this, you failed that, and then you phone the last person and say, we really need you. And they go, why didn't you talk to me six hours yeah. ago? Yeah. So having everybody at least aware of what's going on early on, I think will make those communications a lot smoother uh, when you have to make them. Right. Right. You know, I think the the GI's argument would be, oh, it's going to just be a sea of blood kind of thing. I'm not going to be able to see anything. And that's, I think, part of that discussion, right? I think that's why it's important that, you know, these aren't telephone, when this kind of patient, that's not a telephone discussion about what the best plan is for the patient. It's a just come to the bedside and, and we all need to figure out a plan together. And that's, you know, GI, uh, general surgery, interventional, and, and ultimately maybe the decision in terms of, you know, the simplest pathway is maybe, as you say, they get scoped, you can or can't see anything. But if you can see something, then a decision can be made, can it be managed endos- by endoscopy? Or does that patient then need to go to either IR or surgery? And I think that's why everyone's present to, to help make the next uh, decision on the next step. Totally. I mean, as emergency physicians, we can't tell GI what they have to scope. We can't tell surgeons what they have to operate on, but we can say we're running out of blood and we need you guys to give an opinion. Awesome. Well, listen, is there anything else that we missed or any last words that you want to impart on listeners? Watch for clots blowing. I had a case a few months ago, uh, very similar to the one you've outlined here, and we resuscitate this guy with as close to one to one to one as we could get. And he would stabilize and his blood pressure would come up and his systolic would sort of creep above 100. And then suddenly you can watch it happen. The, the, the color just dropped from his face and immediately his pressure would be in his boots again. And it was clearly because he had an arterial bleed that just blew off the clot. I mean, if that's happening, you need to think what physiologically is causing the stabilization for 
10 to 30 minutes followed by a sudden drop, it's almost certainly that whatever has been bleeding clotted and then that clot gave away. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. All right, John, thanks so much for being on the show. And that's all for today on Massive Upper GI Bleed. Thanks for being here, man. This was awesome. We'll do it again sometime. So there's a lot to unpackage there in this talk. But to summarize, for the massive upper GI bleed, initially you're going to be doing the stuff that you normally do as a resuscitationist. Get the patient in a high acuity area, have them on a monitor, apply oxygen, get your advanced airway equipment to the bedside, and of course obtain good IV access. Now this might be large peripheral IVs, it might be an IO, or depending on the context in which you work, it might be obtaining larger access like a femoral central line or cordis. What's universal for all of these exsanguinating upper GI bleeds who are unstable is that they need blood. In terms of volume products, you want to avoid giving them too much crystalloid and focus more on giving them back products. And depending on the environment that you're working in, the ideal scenario would be giving them a one-to-one-to-one massive transfusion protocol. To further tailor your resuscitation, you're going to want to focus on reversing their coagulopathies. Most of these patients, as they continue to exsanguinate, get cold, will eventually sort of spiral into their lethal triad and develop some coagulopathy. So giving them their balanced resuscitation, which includes FFP, is going to be helpful here. There are a few specific scenarios that you should really think about. So if the patient is on a DOAC or they're on warfarin, then you should consider giving them back prothrombin complex concentrates, such as actriotide. One thing we didn't talk about in this podcast was those patients that have dysfunctional platelets that is going to enhance and increase their amount of bleeding. So those are patients that have renal failure and thus uremic platelets. And the one medication that might be helpful in those patients would be DDAVP. And you'd give that at a dose of 0.4 micrograms per kilogram IV. Other medications that you're trying to use to try to slow down the bleeding like TXA have come into question in the past number of years, specifically with the new HALTA trial. John did appropriately identify that it's unclear whether or not that evidence generalizes to this particular patient population, but certainly at this point, the summary of evidence would probably suggest that TXA may not be helpful in this situation, and you should really focus your attention mostly on the things that do work, like reversing their coagulopathy and treating them with a balanced resuscitation of blood products. One thing that at this point is fairly clear is that these patients will benefit from calcium administration. They are going to be losing it during their massive transfusion protocol through binding with citrate. And so for every six units of packed cells, you should be giving one to two grams of calcium chloride or three to six grams of calcium gluconate. In terms of resuscitation endpoints, we discussed the idea of permissive hypotension in these patients. Like traumas, any increased volume in the vascular system or increased blood pressure may just lead to worsening bleeding, blowing off of clots. And so, so long as the patient is mentating and there's signs of good organ perfusion, otherwise a mean arterial pressure of 50 to 60 is likely reasonable. In terms of hemoglobin endpoints, you can essentially forget about it in this particular patient population. There's some good evidence in GI bleeding that is stable with reduced hemoglobins that a target of 70 or a threshold of 70 can be used to decide whether or not a patient needs to be transfused, but that's just not the patient that we're talking about today. A patient who's actively exsanguinating in front of you or a patient who is hemodynamically unstable, there is no 
hemoglobin threshold. That patient just needs resuscitation to stabilize their blood pressure and to improve end organ perfusion, and that has to be accomplished through administration of blood products. That absolute hemoglobin number is probably irrelevant. You're going to be giving this patient blood product resuscitation so quickly that whatever hemoglobin that you get back 20, 30 minutes from now is probably not the hemoglobin that the patient currently has. And again, doesn't change whether or not you're going to be giving further blood products. You're going to be doing that based on their stability. Decisions on airway management in these patients is extraordinarily difficult. They obviously need to be intubated for facilitation of scope to go to the operating room or maybe for a Blakemore tube in the setting of a variceal bleed. These patients, you do your best to resuscitate them before you intubate them. The ideal strategy is going to be an RSI and employing, as we mentioned, a salad technique. Finally, you need some means by which to stop the patient's bleeding. This doesn't mean administration of a PPI and octreotide like you might in a stable patient. Instead, this means things like getting GI involved to scope the patient. It means getting IR involved for doing interventional embolization of a bleeding source, or maybe it involves getting surgery to the bedside to assess the patient to go to the operating room, or as stated in the setting of a variceal bleed, it might be temporizing the patient using balloon tamponade or a Blakemore in our institution. That's all for upper GI bleeding. If you guys liked this podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcast or wherever else you get your podcasts at The Recess Course or head on over to www.therecesscourse.com to check out all other free open access resuscitation related content. I'm James Gould and thanks for listening to The Recess Course.